0: My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius.
1: I am. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Post Credit Podcast. I am your host, Eric Italiano, senior writer at BroBible.com. Today, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Kate Onder. You can find writing about video games over at ComicBook.com. Today, we have an absolutely packed show. Later in the episode, I will be interviewing the director of Extraction 2, Sam Hargrave. Today is June 16th. It hit Netflix today. It's awesome. Check that out. I also interviewed Golshifte Farhani, who stars in the film as Nick. Her role in this is much bigger than it was in the first, and she kicks ass as well. So check that out. We are going to be breaking down the most divisive film since uh, Schindler's List. Like, I don't know what to tell you here. Like, I mean, what, you know. Or for the course for DC, if, we, yeah. if you're being <laughs> honest. <laughs> I know, right? Um, like, they would they would kill somebody for no news is good news. Yes. Yeah. Um, so we're going to break down and review The Flash. But first, I'm just going to share my thoughts on Extraction 2 and Indy 5. Extraction 2 is short and sweet. It fucking rips. It surpasses the first in every way. Go watch it. The way that I could best describe it is if John Wick and The Raid Were less capable versions of themselves, but still pretty sick. And then they had a baby. That's basically what this film is. And I think now it's locked in that they'll do a third. Uh, And then as for Indy Five, and this is kind of a lot of my thoughts when it comes to the Flash. I feel like, and I said this to our boy Brandon last night. I feel like Endgame has kind of broken fandoms' brains, where it's like every every franchise film that comes out needs to like be the greatest things since that or it's not worth their time and I feel like the indie discourse is in that realm because I feel like you know showing the film at can first dumb move let's just yeah. get that out the way right now since then the receptions have been largely positive but the bad ones have been like well why does this exist Disney's just trying to make money and I understand that that's like a component of these things and a big one at that but it's just like Harrison Ford is 80 years old. You think maybe he just wanted to play the guy again? Or like James Mangold is an accomplished filmmaker. Maybe he just wanted to make a indie film. And when you look at it through like that context, it's fun. It's just like the first four. It's got its fun parts. It's got its parts that seem dated. It's got its corny jokes. Harrison Ford is honestly the goat. Like this guy, I cannot believe he still is compelling as he is in a role like this at this age the cast around him is dope so in general i would ignore the reviews and just go into it like not expecting it to be like lucasfilm is back they're doing it and just be like all right that was fun and then move on with your fucking life You don't don't
2: think this is a Logan of Indiana Jones movie? Because I think that's what some people had hoped for when they heard James Mangold was going to come in. Does it feel like he's director for hire on this one?
1: It feels like Indiana Jones has a specific style. And he was... A man capable of doing that style. And he does. Like, I need, we need to have a serious talk about the de aging thing because the uncanny valley remains. But in terms of like the flow of the action and the pacing and the way that the jokes are worked in, both in terms of like physical comedy and one liners man gold clearly just fucking kept it that was one of my notes this guy just fucking gets it you tell him what needs to be done and he'll do it
2: good yeah like i'm I, i've been excited for this movie for a while um obviously it's been in development for god knows how long, i think since lucasfilm got acquired by disney i think yeah and obviously spielberg was supposed to do it at one point and he dropped off for whatever reason so I'm, i'm pretty i'm pretty excited i've been tempering my expectations for reviews is it is it coherent? Like, For sure. I feel, like it feels like people are like acting like this is an abomination, and I'm like, no, is it because like, they're just like, like we don't the... want this back, or is it like just poorly told? I don't know. It's
1: the good guys and the bad guys are both trying to get some powered artifact, which is exactly what they've done in every single film. Sure, I thought it was fine, a bit long, but fine. All right, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we will be breaking down the Flash.
3: Can go anywhere another timeline
1: another universe so why do you want to stay and fight to save this one all right Kate in case you have not heard the flash hit theaters on what? Friday June 16th it is the most discussed superhero film, I think, of the last 12 months, maybe. A lot of that has to do with its star, Ezra Miller, and all of their alleged crimes. That is a huge component of this. I think a huge Component of it is the way that DC had to creatively market the film because they couldn't really put their stars on camera because they knew they'd be asked about Miller. So they did things like the Tom Cruise. And I think Stephen King even chimed in at some point. Stephen King. And so what they did, I think, and this loops back to my end game point, is that they were selling Get Ready. Get ready for comic book films to change. And you set yourself up for undeniable letdown from that point. So that's point A. But before I dive into my like legit tangent, what were your general thoughts when you left The Flash, whether that be about the film itself or about the discourse around it? What was at the top of your mind? One, this movie does not
2: deserve the level of discourse it's getting. I think people that are like genuinely... Not like, no, not even talking about criticisms, because I think there's a lot of criticisms to be had about this movie. Just people are just like angry over valid things, but like the level of anger is ridiculous. Uh, And we'll get into some of the spoilery anger for, uh, I'm sure. But um, I think it it starts strong, starts to swerve once Supergirl is like formally introduced, and then just totally loses total control and like the big climax of the movie you know to say they would they dropped the ball here is probably not accurate i think they fumbled it it was in play it got knocked out of their hands and then it deflated itself and just became completely unrecoverable in that last third of the movie i mean it's it's pretty rough
1: what about that first half did you think worked i
2: think it's just the focus on the flash and his reason for doing everything it's 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 a heart. Like there is a heart to this movie that is completely covered up. Once I don't, like I would say once Michael Keaton's Batman gets introduced, they start to kind of sweep over that stuff. And it's like, it just becomes something else. It feels like they combine two different scripts and then I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, probably more than two Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> given how many people have been attached to this movie, but yeah, it just feels like something that was way better with more soul, more heart was completely overlooked in in favor of something that uh, they could easily market. I mean, they most of the marketing of this movie feels like it's just the last half of the movie, right?
1: Like because in, they in the know trailers. that nobody's showing up for Miller's Flash. That's kind of the, probably the the, yeah. the spot that they found themselves at. What did you think of them, the Miller? Okay, yeah,
2: um, uh pretty good. I mean, if if they yeah. decided to bring Ezra Miller back, which I don't think they will, but
1: the baggage now is just too much. Yeah, I, think. Yeah. I,
2: I think so too. Like I would, I'm not going to be upset if they don't bring them back, but I do think like, if that's the path they chose to go down, I don't think I would be like, ups- I don't know. It's such a complicated thing. Like morally, I'm like, I don't know if they're really, truly committed to getting better. Maybe. I don't know. It's such a weird spot. I, I feel fair uncomfortable. Uh, but, uh, Good, good flash. I think the best they've been thus far, which mm-hmm. I didn't really like yeah. them in Justice League. So yeah,
1: I know I'm on the same page. I do think I do think they're good. I think it's a shame the way that their career has gone because mm-hmm. he clearly is able to portray sort of. I mean, I don't think that like the fast talky jokey thing is particularly hard, mm-hmm. but when you're able to in that same film portray the genuine depths of like, uh, you know his mom and dad or when he has to in the third act confront the villain. Like he is able to sort of sell the emotion required to anchor a film like this. They're also handsome as fuck. Like there's simply no denying that that fucking jawline is a superhero jawline, especially if they're supposed to be like a college age kid. Like he's a young, sorry, I'm, I'm trying my best. I really am. They're a young looking person so all of that is a shame because had all these alleged crimes not gone down I think that they would keep him around my big point is that I think that the discourse around this film has basically poisoned any reasonable reaction or discussion around and that's why i kate i think you're so fucking smart because finally an original critique of the film it's not just like how dare they have these cameos or these cgi sucks you're saying hey i was into the flash and then he got buried like that is a legitimate Mm -hmm. critique of this film but between ezra's alleged crimes the return of Keaton for the first time in 30 years. This essentially being the death of the Snyderverse. the generally growing frustration with the genre itself, the CGI, the marketing, the flesh found itself as like a launching pad for, I don't want to say film snobs, but I think I want to say people who maybe take these things too seriously and forget that this is about a man who runs for time, (laughs) runs runs through time. This film has been used as, a soapbox for everyone to be like, here ye, here ye, cinema is dead. Like, you know, hang Andy Muschietti and James Gunn at the stake, all this shit. And it's just, honestly, it's fucking exhausting. First and foremost, the controversial CGI cameos, which how you feel about how they fit into the film itself, that's one thing. But yeah. for them to exist in the first place, they had to go through endless legal and personal checks to get that on screen so guess what that doesn't mean it's time for you to virtue signal like your roger fucking ebert on your <laughs> comic book movie soapbox it's just i find it so insane because and then i think have any of these people ever read a comic book this is the shit that happens A comic book looks like the fucking final few final act of that film, which again, like and I've said on the show for a while, I've become accustomed to CGI just being shit. And that's just something that I'm like going to have to face at this point. And as we push the comic book genre further and further into its comic comic bookness, i.e. the leader of the Fantastic Four being made of fucking rubber. Like, what do what are people expecting to see on the screens? I'm just not sure. No way home avoided this problem entirely by just having the sky being vague shadows. So, would you rather them imply cameos or actually fucking go for it? That's personal taste, and that's fine. But to act like this is a crime against film is such a fucking tired bullshit take. It's now, also
2: go I'm ahead. sorry. Uh, no, no. Go ahead. Those those cameos, based on what I saw. I mean, I hope. The whole all of that spoiled on Twitter ahead of the movie. And based on what I was seeing, I thought that was going to be way more than it was the things you saw on Twitter. That's it. Like,
1: <laughs> it's just like, here are, are the other DC things that have been in the world. Cool. Yeah and it's like move on yeah i was like it's fan service they this genre has been doing this for 25 years i
2: have i have things to say about it when we do get more spoilery but like the the level of anger is fucking ridiculous the fact that people were like i need to spoil this for you because i don't want you to see it like that's how fucking bad this is it's like bullshit i get it it's it's ridiculous
1: so that's one point then there's the whole thing about miller right and like yeah His their crimes are a legit problem. And if you don't want to see the film because of that, that is totally your right. But WB going forward with it, like I've seen the take like this is worse than Batgirl or why did they bother? Or like this is the hill that they're dying on. WB going through with this film doesn't mean that they're now in support or perpetuating their behavior. It just means they have a 200 million dollar investment with thousands of employees tied to it that they have to make good on. Like, I don't understand. Like, do is do people legitimately believe in their brains that they were just going to eat this movie? Yeah,
2: like Batgirl probably the box office potential because I think it, it was supposed to be an HBO Max movie, and then I think they were reportedly considering a theatrical release. But that movie was not going to make. No matter how much money this makes, it will not make. It would have not have made the money that the Flash will make. Like regardless of if the Flash is a bomb or a big success, it just wouldn't. So. They're definitely going to be like, all right, what is the potential of the Flash at the box office? It could be huge because look at all of the shit that we have in it. Obviously, they're going to take that chance.
1: I mean, at the very least, it's going to break even, I'd think. Probably, yeah. I think. There's no telling how much their bizarre marketing cost them. So,
2: Yeah, I saw something like... Uh, it needs to make something close to the Batman in order to green light a sequel. I believe yeah, that's was the. I, I think, yeah, which would be like 700 something million dollars. And I mean, that would, that would mean it'd have to, I it's got a clear like couple of weeks. I think like, I think the next few weeks is pretty, pretty quiet in terms the summer blockbusters mission impossible is about exactly a month out. So, I mean, they have some time to make up some ground, but the problem I, I is
1: think the gonna discourse is going to crush it dead.
2: Yeah, and, and uh, Jacob from Discussing Film made a great point of like, I don't know how much energy this movie has because the discourse has already existed for so long. Like right. this movie has been shown to people for the last month. So people have already talked about it. And right. there, like, there's not a lot of incentive for those people to go back. And it's just kind of a weird, again, backfire on the marketing, I think.
1: Yeah. Okay, let's move on. We're going to be talking about the plot of the film itself. So this is spoilers, not necessarily spoilers i.e. stuff that has not been shown in trailers, but spoilers in the sense that this is what goes down in the film. Yeah. Uh, so here's your warning, spoiler warning, spoiler warning, spoiler warning. Cade, especially given the news that Andy Muschietti is going to direct Batman the Brave and the Bold, I want to start with the Batman stuff. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> I think his Batman film is going to have to look a lot better because this movie looks <laughs> yeah. like shit. Yeah. And I don't... Batman is one of the most easily photographable superheroes that there are but if you do sh- but if you make it look like shit it's gonna look like shit so i want to yeah. start with what i think was the strongest part of it and that was the batman action Keaton and ben are both they both feel like real emphasis on superheroes, wherein in this world they could actually square up with yeah. super powered villains and theoretically, hang with Justice League members. I thought the action was super cool, and 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 it's sort of the next evolution of Batman that I want to see on screen. It's the Snyder fight, but expanded over the course of Batman's entire scope, like the Affleck chase scene. I, I'm not sure we've ever seen a Batman move that fluidly throughout the world, like right. throughout the world that he's in. No,
2: yeah. The um, we're talking about when he gets off the
1: bike. Yeah. Yeah, that shit was sick. Just even before that, literally the first shot of him where the bat plane opens and you see his horns. I'm like, okay, this yeah. guy gets it. That's yeah. a fucking great, that's, yeah, that's uh, a great shot of Batman. Yeah. That's the
2: iconography of Batman, right? And it's. It's clear Muschetti is a a fan of Batman, if that wasn't obvious by the fact that he has two Batmans in it. Um, But, uh, yeah, no, I completely agree. Like, I couldn't imagine Christian Bale's Batman ever going up against anyone in this world. But Affleck always made sense. Like, they always kind of demonstrated it that way in the Snyderverse. And then Keaton, it was like, I don't know. Like, what would that look like? Uh, He's obviously a much more heightened version of the character, uh, just in a completely different way. And here... As soon as he jumps into action, you're like, oh, yeah, like this is sick. And I do love like the costume still seems to have that element where he can't move his neck. He's still like moving his whole body. I'm like, I love that they kept that in, even though they obviously probably shouldn't have. Um, But it it works here. So he moves very fluidly when he's fighting the Man of Steel. That's the the exact
1: one. Yeah. And he's just like
2: bouncing off his back and doing that stuff. I'm like, yeah, this guy is both physically capable, but intelligent. Right. And that's that's what separates Batman from other superheroes is his intelligence. And that's what allows him to have a fighting chance against people who should rip
1: his head off. Like he's very clearly outgunned. Yeah. <laughs> like, and like I I the Keaton thing is actually outside of the third act, my least favorite part of this film. Mm-hmm. But his sort of resignation to like having to fight this dude the way that his face was just like oh fuck me man <laughs> you know like that's some batman shit right it's like dude i am so fucking tired of doing this but yeah. all right i guess i'll whoop your fucking ass if I have to. <laughs> you know so i think all that stuff worked but the keaton stuff this to me more so than the cgi fucking carnival that we get at the end is the more egregious fan serviced shoehorned in multiversal device in this film. Explain to me why he just couldn't go to another universe with Ben's Batman, especially considering the weird post credit scene where he's explaining to Aquaman. He's like, yeah, it's weird. You're the same one that you were back home, but Batman's different. Like, they created this entire narrative around just forcing in Keaton, which, okay, fine, would have been cool. But the drunken recluse, which we've seen tons of times, we've seen it in The Dark Knight Rises, we've seen Ben do it, but Keaton doesn't seem like he was depressed over the death that he's faced or drinking to forget the loss of the blonde chick that he fell in love with at some point, whose name I don't know right now. It It just seems like he was getting drunk to get drunk. And it's like, this this is what old superheroes do. They grow out the hair and they drink. And then the, the fight scene in the kitchen is fun, but for him to just be like, I'm back now, I'm flipping around the kitchen, yeah. it's just, it, it is so goddamn annoying when you compound that with spoilers for the third act. When you compound that with the third act, right? And again, I'm gonna spoil how Keaton's character's arc closes here. The idea that this universe is always doomed and that Keaton's Batman and Kara zorrel are always going to die, That is thematically potent, right? I appreciate that. And I think bringing back Keaton to kill him because that is the fate of his universe and his story works for me. But the practicality in which they did that, i.e., the kamikaze move, which is the most un Batman move I've ever heard in my entire life a not only because he will literally never stop fighting until he will be like the guy from Monty Python no legs no arms and being like come on let's go like that is his whole fucking thing his superpower is his force of will right so for him to be like well I guess we're screwed going down yeah insane characterization and that makes me sort of worried for the Batman film as well but on top of that him to not like Take a beat to think about it harder is also a, an absolute insane character misstep here. So all of that stuff really bothers me. I was more okay with how Kara Zor dies. were in. She can't. She just simply can't beat Zod, which is where Superman was too. He just decided to kill him. He was like, "All right, well, yeah. I have no no fucking choice here." So I appreciate the Zor uh, Kara move more. But yeah, the Keaton thing is. I think what ails this film, because if you just kept Ben's Batman in it, made him an alternate universe Batman, throw him in the Keaton suit for all I fucking care. You know what I mean? I think it would have been a much smoother film and it would have felt more well considered.
2: I wonder if they wrote the script in a way that was like, if Michael doesn't want to do it, we're fine. Like we're not going to have any direct references because there is no mention of any of his past besides I saved Gotham. That's it, and that can be any Batman. Um, you could pluck anyone. You could even just have like a new actor, someone who's never played Batman before, and just be like, "This is Batman," and it would make total sense. And I mean, he really doesn't have any arc, like really, like he doesn't. He's just kind of there. He's like, because I mean, Barry's like, "Hey, will you come do it?" He's like. I'll yep. pass. Oh, really? <laughs> he, yeah, he's like doesn't give any. Re- no, he literally says uh, like in the kitchen. They're like, oh, right, 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 right. He says, "Do you want to do it?" And he's like, "I'll pass." And it's like that's it. There's no like reasoning. And then he kind of like, oh, you know, I, I'm here to save my mom. And like, you had parents who died. So like, and Batman's <laughs> like, I guess, like I'll join. <laughs> and it's like all right. But yeah, like it. I mean, I felt nothing when he died.
1: And right, yeah, and I, that's and that's fucking di- like just a dire fuck up.
2: Yeah, and I I think he was not meant to die, and neither was Supergirl because there are set photos of Michael Keaton and Supergirl outside the courthouse at the end of the movie. I I remembered them, and I I looked them up today, and I'm That's like, right. these scenes aren't in the movie, and they are from the finale of the movie, yeah, which so suggests
1: the they which made, going which to probably die. means that those were the plans that. The DCU were gonna go forth with probably before they sold the last time because there were reports a few years ago that Keaton was gonna be the DCU's yes. like Nick new Thierry. Batman. Yeah, which again, just like, what are they smoking crack over there? Like, what <laughs> the fuck is going on over? <laughs> I at don't DC? know. I love Keaton, but for the love of God, dude, he's seventy plus years it's, old. It's a
2: weird thing to bet on for sure, and I mean, but I think you're him. right. Yeah, good. Like he got out, so good for him. Uh, but but yeah, like everything about his uh entire role in this movie is like he's the most justified in terms of like he's at least not there to just check a box i think like he's still like i don't know earns something but it's definitely a little hollow and like i said this could be any batman and you probably wouldn't know the difference yeah final thoughts on batman stuff i, I think i couldn't stop thinking about uh when he's crashing the plane he, like of like uh like a meme like oh i loved her so much it's <laughs> just like like someone driving their car to a tree <laughs> or something and and i was really bothered by what really killed it for me was when he crashes barry goes no like not like any like actual like urgency or emotion He's she's like oh no yeah.
1: plus we've seen that he's like fast enough that he could have like run his way up there and, and like pulled them out
2: yeah, and, and Batman knew the shields were still up. It's just like, it's just, it's, again, we just said Batman's really intelligent in this movie. Stupidest fucking thing I've ever seen Batman do in a movie, probably.
1: Yeah. They, we, they had an idea. and I just don't think they knew how to, on here, land that plane. They're like, all right, the idea yeah. that Batman is going to die over and over and over again regardless of what Barry does, that is a teachable moment, right? It's like, yes, because Barry comes from a world where he says, Batman's my best friend. So not only does he have love for Bruce Wayne, but he knows how fucking smart Bruce is. So seeing a universe where, wow, even Bruce Wayne can't beat fate, that's a powerful moment. Yeah. But as we're saying, the way in which they doled that out was just fucking bad, man. How does he die at the end? I guess just crashes the... Plane and then he
2: starts fighting the guy and he gets kind of just thrown really hard. Okay. That's really it. Like he doesn't take any like serious blows, and he's just like, (laughs) uh I'm tired. (laughs) And Batman, I get it, man. Uh, but yeah, like what you were saying is like the the themes of this whole idea are are great, but I, I do think it probably comes down to that was not the original plan since they were supposed to stay alive and they weren't able to like cobble something together it was something they probably really had to do kind of last minute and make it make sense and it just wasn't something that could come together without a lot more thought
1: how are you feeling now about the brave and the bold uh not not great
2: um (laughs) (laughs) not great bob yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um I I just I don't I don't know how much of this is Andy Muschetti's fault and how much of it is just extenuated. Well, circumstances. you you just
1: said the script is like a zombie script. That's like a Yeah. Frankenstein part script. So let's let's I, I I would venture to say that most of the third act is not his fault.
2: I would say that. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably fair. Yeah. Because like like I said earlier, the, the first half of this movie feels like something completely different and with a lot more heart. And I think the scene between Barry Allen and Ben Affleck's Bruce Wayne outside of his apartment is an awesome scene where mm. Ben yeah. Affleck is like, hey, I'm sorry. That sucks that you have to understand that you shouldn't do what you're about to go do. And I think that's one of the best like Ben Affleck Batman moments out there is just like someone who lives with a lot of pain, but has learned to accept his pain as who he is.
1: Do you know that Ben, have you seen that quote from Ben where he's like, yeah, in uh, this one, I finally figured out how to play
2: Batman. (laughs) It was very evident. On, mm-hmm. and during that scene, and I think he was talking about the lasso of truth moment, which I thought was pretty corny. But um, that, but that, that if, if, stuff if it, works for me. It, it was fun, and I think I think that's another that thing. gag.
1: Batman bearing his soul because of that rope will always work for me. It's it's cute. Always it's cute. I
2: I didn't necessarily love some of the ways they portrayed it in this particular movie, but I like the idea of it. But. Um, I, I think that there is room for a lighter Batman, not the dark Grim Reeves Batman. You know, not I, if our
1: boy Jake G plays him.
2: <laughs> well, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's probably true. He's not going to probably be playing it too too comical. But I don't want it to be Batman and Robin. I don't necessarily need it to be the Batman or even the Dark Knight. Something in between that can exist within the superhero world. Because I think one of my favorite parts of this movie, and it's very, very brief, is that in a way that the MCU doesn't feel like it is done? These superheroes exist within like this world. They're not just there for the Avengers movies, right? Well, seeing Wonder Woman, Batman, and the Flash just hanging out, like in his movies, cool. being like, "We're coming in, and then we're gonna pop out," and like yeah, it cool. doesn't
1: feel weird. It's and it was nice story- to have a cameo, not fucking spoiled for me before I go into the theater. Like Blood I had no Woman? idea that she w- was gonna pop up. No, oh, you're
2: lucky. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I, I think hey man
1: if- when gail godot is on screen i'll always be happy so i was listening i was listening I, I respect her. Um, and also I will say one of the best lines in Zack Snyder's Justice League, he sees her for the first time and he says, Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's really fucking funny.
2: Yeah, like uh, she gets, she gets better looking with each movie, I think. So it's a <clears throat> shame she's probably on the way out, but yeah, for real. Um no, yeah, I, I don't know how I feel about Musketti's Batman movie. I guess I'll I think I'll probably know how I feel definitively when they say who they're casting as Batman. Because I think that'll tell you Mm. everything you need to know about what kind of
1: Batman this is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Some choices I have in mind. Of course, I said Jake G. I know this one is not really realistic, but Michael Fassbender, Mm. um, Sebastian Stan, and then an outside-the-box one, because we know he's boys with James Gunn, and maybe could just say, fuck it, I'm down, Bradley Cooper.
2: I, I tweeted this out recently when they were like talking about uh I I, I don't even remember what, what the story was but I was like I would love to see him as Batman I think he fits in that Ben Affleck age range where it could be someone older with a child you know that's and you premise.
1: just know his his Bruce Wayne would crush it and that's the oh, hardest yeah. part
2: right yeah he's got that charm and that charisma already locked down and i think i mean you watch a movie like a star is born that's a guy who can go to some pretty heavy places so yeah, he's yeah. he's got it i don't think he will but i would I love know. it if he did because he's
1: doing filmmaking what a fucking nerd. <laughs> Be fucking batman dickhead <laughs> uh all right we already touched on ezra miller's performances and when People say this movie cost $200 million. Where'd the budget go? It went to fucking Ezra Miller talking to himself seamlessly for two and a half hours. Yeah, there are some moments. It looks great. Yeah, like 98%
2: of the time. It looks great. There are some and it's I'm probably paying way too close attention, but like there are some moments where like they'll walk into a room together and they'll be very close to each other. And one's face looks a little more PS2 y than the other one. And uh, I'm like, PS2 yeah. Interesting. What happened there? I don't, I don't totally know. But yeah, no, it's, it's, it's solid. And especially the difference in the performances, right? Mm. It doesn't feel like the exact same person. You can see how one goes to a level of darkness and descent and craziness than the other one, um, which is really interesting. And the idea that that is Barry's fault is he, probably would have never gone down that path had Barry not been there to kind of just mess with his head unintentionally, you know, um, and his, his emotional being um, because Barry had to have a tragic moment in his life that shaped him and then become the flash and then learn to become the flash. Whereas this new Barry is speed quite literally speed running the superhero origin, which is very interesting. Right. Um,
1: yeah.
2: But, uh, There's a scene in the Batcave where um, the younger Barry is just being kind of annoying and the older Barry blows up on him. And I was like, this is good. This is really good and really interesting. And you can see the hurt on young Barry's face. And the also he
1: just meets him. But still, he's like, this is the coolest guy ever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: And then you can also see the hurt inside of older Barry, where this is coming from. And he's like, you know, you used our monkey as a dartboard. The fuck? Yeah, I love that. I love that. That is like truly very sweet. And like, again, that's the shit. I think that's why I really don't like this movie is because. You see those glimmers of something way better, of something that's like really character driven, really emotional. And it just completely loses that in the third act, except for when he goes back to see his mom. I think that seems beautiful, but the fact that the whole movie wasn't like that just makes me so fucking angry because it's
1: not going to be a fucking character study of Barry Allen. It's a fucking, I get it. I get it. Like, you know, what do you expect? I, I I mean, you expect it to be better. That's what you expect. It's not that you don't expect them to do it. You expect them to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's
2: exactly it. And I I think again, like there was probably a chance that they could have still probably cobbled it together. Had they not had, you know studio buyouts and just all these weird changes like i really do think it's it's the worst example of studio politics in a blockbuster movie in quite some time (laughs) Um, it's just it's just really frustrating
1: so now we've talked about the flash performance i want to talk about the flash action in this film this was another thing that has been driving me nuts We've, we've been seeing the clip online of where he takes the baby out of the microwave which like i get is a funny thing to say out loud yeah twitter has reversed the clip so it looks like he's putting it in but like
2: (laughs) of course they did of course they
1: did Which
0: is very funny.
1: (laughs) But it takes away the context of what I thought was a cool display of the Flash's powers. How, you know, he's, you know, I think at this stage, now that we've gotten Quicksilver and the Flash, it's becoming harder and harder to have a genuinely unique super speed scene. But to have him do it like in midair while also having to fuel himself up. I enjoyed that scene a lot, which made me frustrated that that was sort of the last time we saw the Flash use his powers like that. Yeah, I like the scene
2: on paper. I thought it was a little just like jarring, like, tonally i was like is this supposed to be funny like i couldn't tell like like the gr- falling
1: babies like what like c- couldn't they have yeah. just done like grown-ups but then i guess he can't put a grown-up in a microwave so. no
2: i mean i like the idea of a bunch of babies falling out of a building like i think that's super like corny that's but, like, comic book shit that's yeah comic exactly book shit. that's exactly the kind of thing I was like. i've never seen this before like and i was like that's interesting and so i was like this could be cool i didn't love the execution of it but i was like All the pieces are here. I think uh, maybe in the hands of a slightly better director, it probably could have been like way more interesting and exciting. I think they're too focused on making that scene funny as opposed to like really exciting. And um, because it's, it's really ironic that scene is supposed to be him going super fast, but it feels super slow. Like if you think about the Quicksilver stuff, it's in slow motion, but it's fast and it does right. not feel that way here because he just sits there and looks at babies getting stabbed and like whatever. And I'm like, all right, like let's well, there's no urgency here. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Um, but yeah, I generally think like the action of the entire movie is like kind of hit or miss. Like I feel like the best action is usually from the Batman. Um and I think surprise, in the last prize, yeah, <laughs> it's clear where Andy Muschetti's priorities lie. <laughs> um, but I, I thought like the last like big finale was like just dreadful. I mean, in a wasteland, like all of the worst qualities you can have in a comic yeah. book movie finale of like, there are no people here to save. Because you think about like Metropolis in Man of Steel is an interesting place because people are in danger, which leads to the ultimate decision that Superman has to snap Zod's neck because... He can't People wait
1: had anything. such a fucking meltdown though that that's why they course corrected the complete yes. opposite way.
2: Yes, and that, that's what I, I was going to say is, it's so funny to go back to a movie that it was already so divisive and do it way worse. <laughs> it's like, that's <laughs> crazy to me. Because um, <laughs> Zod is so boring in this movie. He clearly so does not so want to be there. It's, it's really unfortunate because Michael Shannon turns into one of the best comic book movie villain performances in man of steel and here he is Is just like cara i'm here <laughs> i know <laughs> and, he
1: really phoned it in you could tell
2: and i don't blame him michael at shannon all.
1: our fucking king he's
2: the best and i i i also this is a, just very quick aside i do not get why she changed her fucking mind because it seemed like she was ready to let earth die and then she sees him start to kill people and she's like oh no he's bad and it's like yeah he said he was gonna do that what the fuck are you surprised about um anyways I think this movie, like, knowing that Man of Steel, like, the language of that movie is distinctly Snyder, right? With the camera zooms, the way the Kryptonians move, like, the big, like, bursts of air and energy coming off of them when they hit people or they right. run. Yeah. They try to do that stuff here. But, like, given everything else around them looks like total shit, it looks so bad. And it you can't. You can't emulate someone like Zack Snyder. I think this is the, the problem that some people seem to have with Indiana Jones 5 is Mangold maybe trying to do a little bit of Spielberg. And it's like, if you're not, and I don't know, it's not what I'm saying. No, that's but I'm saying I, like,
1: even if that is, that's the fucking point.
2: Right. And that's yes, the I, point. I get that. I get it. But like with someone like Snyder, like that, that style is so distinct. And like, you know it when you see it. You can't just come in here and just like try. You have yeah. to like study that shit because even my favorite scene from Man of Steel is the arrival of Zod when he hijacks all the screens around oh, the world. Awesome. Terrifying scene. The, the, there's a weird, creepy like sound, like an eerie, like <laughs> screaming. Yeah. And the all, all the, you know, lights go out and stuff and it's just super uncomfortable. And in this movie, it happens in broad daylight in a bar and nobody seems to be that worried and they even changed on the screen in the man of steel movie he's wearing like his helmet and it's like skeletal and so you Uh can't see who he is in this movie it's his face face and it looks like the cg i keep thinking of shrek when i see michael Shannon's cg face in this movie (laughs) it's bad really fucking bad and that's what i saw on the screen i was like God, you had such an easy fucking framework. Like that shit was done for you and you still decided to make it worse.
1: I don't get it. Yeah. Maybe to make it their own. I guess, but like, fuck you. (laughs) Sorry. All right, let's move on to the next big point. That is the CGI. Look, uh, you said it looks like PS2. I I wrote down in my notes. It looks like that one scene from uh, The Matrix 2, which of course you've still not seen, (laughs) which which I get. But again, it's like, I just don't understand what people are expecting as we go forth in this next 10 years of film, like secret wars. Guess what? That's going to be on a whole new planet. The flash. He runs at super speed and runs through time. Nolan fucking set off a nuke, but he's not going to create the speed force. You know, like (laughs) I don't understand exactly what people are expecting DC to do in order to make a flash film. You know what I mean? Now, as for the cameos, I touched on this at the top. Would you rather them go the no way home route and just imply it? So you've got to wait. Till it comes out at home and pause it and be like, oh, that's, that's Black Cat and that's right. Craven the Hunter. <laughs> or do you just want to fucking see Nick Cage as Superman and be like, holy shit, they really did this? So I am okay with people not enjoying it, but I think hating on it because it looks like shit is sort of missing the point of that this is the world that we're in now. This right. is something that we're going to have to get used to. It would be better if studios did this shit less and I would... Be thrilled if they did, but Secret Wars is going to have shit like this. Now, while it probably will look better, this is the road that we're going down. So the sooner that you accept it and like understand that comic books are weird, and in order to create those environments and those characters, it's going to take a lot of fucking CGI work that occasionally is going to look bad. But that is the deal that we've signed, right? The fact that we keep showing up to these things, regardless of how they look, tells them that they could keep doing it. So... I, you know, I just, I don't think that, like, as you said, the energy is just not worth it.
2: Yeah, no, I completely agree with that part. Um, I, I, it's interesting. Uh, I think the word cameo has lost all definition over the last five, seven years. Um, I, I think uh, what we see at the end of this movie are cameos. Michael Keaton is not a cameo. Some people are saying that and I'm like, right. it's not a cameo. That's a character. That's like Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield are not cameos. Those are characters, right? Andrew Garfield is a legitimate arc and in, in no way home. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think those cameos are good. I understand the idea of the multiverse is weird. Let's fucking lean into it because we've had examples of like multiverse of madness, not really doing anything with that idea of just like the most extreme things. You have a universe of red lights instead of green lights. Like, okay kind of weird um (laughs) but uh i I like the idea of it it felt more like these were check boxes like we can so we will and i get it from like a you know studio perspective yeah sure i mean i don't know how many people are gonna fucking even know why nicholas cage is in this movie i feel like they're
1: gonna be like wait what what the fuck was that um yeah true uh but uh but yeah, to those I... people, so like okay, the guy next to me who had to be like 65, right? Mm-hmm. When Christopher Reeve showed up, he was hooting and hollering and clapping, and he was fucking psyched. So, like, I think that those people who don't necessarily understand what the cage thing are are is, that's kind of the point. They don't need to, they don't sure. need to get it to be like it's huh, weird. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. It's, so yeah, it's interesting. So, and, and and that's why I just think the discourse around this film has completely detached fandom from the reality of regular people who like you're my dad's age if you're our dad's age they're probably like man i love that character as a kid it's great to see him again maybe his family yes the dollar the almighty dollar always rules but have you considered that there have been three supermans since reeve and that maybe they want his legacy as the superman to live on like these there there are so many more components of dc bad and that is just such a reductive take that I've seen everywhere, where it's just like, dude, have a fucking original opinion. Just because Reeve is in it, it doesn't mean we're going to get Superman 5 with a yes. fully CGI'd Reeve zombie. Like, he doesn't say a word. He's on yeah. screen for two seconds. It's an acknowledgement of, here's where DC started. Cage is, here's where it could have gone. <laughs> and that's fucking all it is.
2: Yeah. I think a lot of that anger comes from people haven't seen the movie, right? They don't care. They don't care about context and, and whatnot. And that's just a problem of internet th- discourse is people just want to have something to say without actually having something to say. And um, that's unfortunate. Uh, I think there's a little more nuance that could be having this conversation, but if you don't, if you don't have full context, you're never going to be able to have your opinion be valid. I'm sorry. You just won't because your opinion is not educated. It doesn't come from anywhere. You have not tried to do anything to form an opinion. You have just taken what's already out there and, blah, you know, regurgitated it. Exactly. That's fucking annoying. I hate exactly. people like that. It's really yeah. stupid. Um, so, yeah. Do I like these cameos? Not really. They didn't really do anything for me. It was, again, just more like, eh, we're just doing it to do it. And But how you
1: know, is it any different than the No Way Home Sky thing? I don't
2: really care for that either okay. i mean like okay. that, doesn't, that doesn't
1: do anything for me like i was like okay
2: i mean it's it's more at that point about less about to me uh oh there's craven and more like oh shit like the world's falling apart that was what that was for me and i didn't get that here i think the idea was that and it, it also just felt confusing i was like i'm not sure what's even happening are yeah, these why are writing? these
1: specific people floating in the sky
2: yeah i was like are they like Colliding, like they show, like one of these universes like hitting each other. I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? What's happening? So that's a that's a big problem. Where I was like, it's like you thought more about the cameos than I think the logistical reasons for why they're here. And I was like, I don't know what's going on anymore. Yeah, there's a big weird rock monster trying to kill Flash. I don't know what's going on.
1: So, any final thoughts on the Flash before we talk about the future? Um, just um. I think it's, I'm glad it's over. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like I'll probably rewatch it when it comes on Mac. But it's like, as you said at the top, I think that that's kind of the bottom line point that we're both making. This film does not deserve the discourse it's getting. It just doesn't. You don't need to be that angry about this movie. You really don't. We promise.
2: It's the Twitter bubble, right? I've talked a lot about this on Twitter, about various things, but like the Twitter bubble is real you think everything is bigger than it is. And like, there are so many people out there who don't know who Ezra Miller is and what, what is has happened. Right, there there exactly. are so many people who don't understand. Yeah, my dad,
1: any of I, he texted me two separate times over the course of the month. Flash looks cool. He doesn't know what the fuck is going on with, you know what yeah, I mean? Like, yeah. yeah,
2: that's what it boils down to. Like my dad, his only knowledge of any of this stuff is when I run upstairs and tell him Ben Affleck is back as Batman. He's not back as Batman. I don't know what's going on. With ben Affleck. He's
1: like, kid, what the fuck
2: are you talking about? <laughs> i
1: don't know what any of this shit is and i'm scared That's <laughs> exactly <laughs> all right let's talk about the future before we talk about the future of the flash and the dcu i am curious about what you think about the future of the multiverse has it busted its nut here i feel like over the course of a year or two they've kind of gone a little bit too much all in on the concept and i feel like people are kind of tired of it already which is a problem considering that secret wars is not for another three years isn't it Four now? Didn't they do it? Twenty six? No. Oh no. 2027, oh, no. so it's twenty twenty seven. Yeah. All right. Same point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't. Like, how do you feel about, about it personally? Because oh, I'm, I've had enough.
2: The multiverse is yeah. that what you're Yeah. Like,
1: I, I feel like the multiverse is best used in the way that Flashpoint does it, wherein you're being dropped into a completely different world. Like, whereas we saw in Doctor Strange and this, it's a very timid kind of swing at it's like things are a little different cars move backwards and Batman is older you know what I mean but like (laughs) in Flashpoint it's like Wonder Woman and Aquaman are at war and London is falling into the sea so I think that that's a fun way to use it as a true gonzo Elseworlds tale or in pure cameo effect wherein sort of like uh into the Spider-Verse where the villain is threatening to collapse it. And yeah. at the climax, you're able to see into the window of the multiverse. And then you can do all the fun little shots of cameos. But this sort of half-assed, we're going to drop Flash into a world that's kind of like his own, but a little different. And the same thing with Doctor Strange. I haven't seen across the Spider-Verse yet, which, of course, I've heard is phenomenal. Oh, but really? yeah, I just think the concept has kind of run its course much quicker than these studios thought it would absolutely because they went
2: too hard too fast and even like unpredictable something like everything everywhere all at once is coming in and doing other things and it's like oh shit like they're really gonna speed up the fatigue here um and doing it better yeah i agree and it's it says something a lot too when this comic book story has a better more interesting batman in the flashpoint batman with uh his dad being thomas wayne Yeah. Raging murderer. And then that's like, that's a distinct difference of like the timeline has been so fucked. Right. Batman's killing people and it's not even Bruce Wayne. Like that is something that's so unique about that story. And and then it gives you that beautiful moment at the end of that story where he's able to bring a note back from his dad Amazing. to Bruce Wayne. Amazing. That's beautiful. And like they had they it still, right there, just make yeah. flashpoint it's right they, there. They, they really like fuck with it too much. And for the sake of just doing stuff that we we're familiar with, but yeah. again, it's doing something that we know doing it worse. And yep. that's, that's a problem that we are repeatedly seeing. I think with these movies now, it's like Michael Keaton's Batman, has always existed on a pedestal for a lot of people with Batman and Batman returns. Those are fucking well beloved, critically acclaimed movies. And they are taking him and they are taking the chance that we fuck
1: this up. And do you think that do? do you think it's that serious though? You think that his legacy as Batman is really a risk? No fucking chance, dude. I mean, yes, we still have those movies, right? The people and, who revere him as the best are too old to give a shit.
2: Sure. I don't know. It's still just like it's it's tainting something on some level, whether you think it's big or small, I don't know. But it is still like it's just playing with toys. Yeah, and I don't know how. That's much a like great that. way to put it. Yeah,
1: they're just smashing them. Yeah, yeah. Now, future of the Flash. I I think it's pretty clear by way of Clooney showing up at the end as Batman that this is probably the last time we're going to see Ezra's Flash. That is just where he's going to exist, and that's the end of the. DC EU, right? I mean,
2: I'm down to see Clooney as Batman again. Fuck it, why not? There's no way. Dude, <laughs> no, Clooney's it's, worth it's a not, billion fucking yeah. dollars these days. He's doing Nespresso
1: ads. He <laughs> playing Batman in the fucking DC 2.0. Do you think we'll see the actor again? When do you think we'll see the character again next? Like if he shows up in Aquaman two and be like, "What the fuck is going on here?"
2: <sighs> yeah, that's a. It's a. I, I I don't think I mentioned this. Ben Affleck's still alive. I thought they were going to kill him. I
1: figured right. that would be their, like, they were. Yeah, but like, banner has been pretty time. forthright about, like, this. Oh, yeah. Is he's, he's not that.
2: coming back. I mean, like, the door is open if they find a way to convince him, but, like, I don't think
1: that's ever going to happen. Yeah. But,
2: um, yeah, I guess that begs the question is what timeline is Aquaman 2 set in?
1: I Dude, think the we, original one that Barry just left. Okay. Fuck it. Why not? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I, he's I, gone. Uh, he's out. He's toast. Yeah.
2: I I, I don't. I think they, like I said, that ending was obviously reshot and they might have done multiple reshoots. As far as I understand, up until very recently, they were trying to figure out how to end this movie. And so it feels like they have literally trapped the Flash in a universe and just been like, he's going to exist over there. He's going to, he's happy, he's alive um that's it <laughs> and i i would be surprised to see this art incarnation of the flash ever again i mean again if this is a huge box office hit which it doesn't it's probably going to be then yeah we'll probably see him again but um as for the flash himself i mean it's so weird looking at the dc slate and just being like they have a superman movie they have a supergirl movie and batman and a couple other like smaller Small things thing, yeah it's like
1: gold um i don't know how long it'll be
2: before we see the flash again i mean it's pretty
1: much a guarantee that when we do it's wally west right that's their way out it's just like a different flash
2: yeah i mean i mean they're gonna, have, they're gonna have a new guy <laughs> bruce wayne and a different clark kent so i don't think they're afraid of like taking it head on but i mean yeah. like they've they've had two live action barry Allen's already maybe that's a way to spruce it up we'll see yeah.
1: All right, that's going to do it for our conversation about The Flash. Now let's take a quick break and then over to my interviews for Extraction 2. First up, Day Farahani, who plays Nick. And then finally, Sam Hargrave, the director of the first two films. <music> Folks, today I am joined by Golshifte Farahani, an actress you know from projects such as Body of Lies, Patterson, Invasion, and a new film, Extraction 2, which hits Netflix on June 16th. Thank you so much for your time today.
0: Thank you for having me. Thank you.
1: So this may be a strange place to start, but are you familiar with Seinfeld? Seinfeld? Seinfeld, the show?
0: (laughs) No, I'm not. I'm like, what? So like science fiction or like sci-fi or Seinfeld? No, I'm not.
1: Well, okay. So the point I'm trying to make is the two main characters in that show where they start out before we meet them they're dating but by the time we meet them that's done and they're friends and that reminds me of tyler and nick so i'm curious how you would describe the relationship between those two characters because the job that you two doing of portraying the unspoken love whatever form of love that is i think is incredible so i would love to hear it from your point of view
0: Wow, it's incredible that you you saw and you felt that because it's the one of the most important things about this character for me that she's a like a female hero, a killer, warrior that is not a love interest or she's not in love with somebody. And it's funny that you say those two characters were dating before. I'm not sure if these two even dated before. I think... There is somewhere that they are connected in grief and pain somewhere back in the days. This is something we also don't know. We cannot imagine because in extraction one, we were actually exploring some some kind of like a man and woman sexual attraction between them, but that didn't work out clearly. So they cut it out. It doesn't exist anymore. But it's very interesting that you picked up on it. I think- That's why also I love about this character is everything we don't know about her, everything we don't know about her past and her future. But it's absolutely true that she's one of the very rare female characters in the history of cinema as warrior that is not a love interest of somebody and she's not in love with somebody, but she's ready to die for him. It's it's such deep bonding and friendship that she is a lover but not sexualized.
1: It reminds me if you had a childhood friend who was a boy or for me, a girl that you grow up with and your best friends and then, you know, once like flirting and all that stuff comes into play. But there's this there's this bond that they have. So I was curious if just had if Sam had given you guys perspective of where they started. But I think it's cool to hear that sort of you and Chris are filling that in in your own minds.
0: Yet, that's again funny that you say that, because in the Extraction 1, we explored that a little bit. We even explored a kiss. And this yeah. is
1: much different. I find it to be a much deeper bond here. I mean, he literally risks his life for Nick.
0: And she does too. I mean, oh, at the course. end, she comes to save him. Both of them, they're ready to die for each other. She always so
1: saves them. She's always saving them. Yeah, she's always <laughs> he, he always need saving <laughs>
0: And even she loses her only brother for him. Uh, yep. For him, that he betrayed her. She, he lied to her. He didn't tell her the truth. Yeah. So there is something much deeper even than a family bonding. They are, I think, they're they're, they're rooted in their connection. Is rooted in pain and grief. Right. There's something that. they felt together that they they are bonding in that. I'm sure so- of it.
1: So I had the chance to speak to Sam for a, a nice long chat as well. And he actually name checked your fight scene in the cockpit of the train as literally one of the one of his favorite that he's ever done. Those were his exact words. And I don't blame him. It is awesome. As are you in your primal ferociousness, really, like I I want to get to how you got to that point. But first, how does it feel knowing that someone as experienced as Sam in that field feels that way about your work? And next, What about that scene was the most difficult to perform?
0: My goodness. First of all, I'm very proud because it's not only Sam, but all our stunt team that they think it's like this fight is one of their top five fights they have ever seen or done. So it is something that it makes me really proud. And I I wanted to do everything myself. At the same time, they brought it in for weather cover. Basically, they brought it forward. We're supposed to do this fight in two weeks and then they brought it forward. So I had to learn the choreography in like intensive two and a half, two days. It was a lot of pressure. Uh, but at the end of that shooting day, it was like uh, champagne. Everyone were like celebrating and hugging each other as if like we achieved something incredible. And the stunt doubles, they were all ready. They didn't do anything. They were just standing there waiting. And I managed to do everything. It was exhausting. We started at eight. We finished at like 6 PM as if like you're running a football field for eight hours nonstop because we don't even have lunch break. So I'm proud of it. I love that scene. And I, you know, we trained for two months before the shooting like athletes for that. And then, of course, you learn the choreography of all the rest. That fight was my... And we started with that as if like Nick got initiated in that fight. And then the rest of the movie, I was really confident about everything else. And um, this was about the fight. You had another question about oh, Sam. Oh, yes, ma'am.
1: It was, it was... So I, I'm aware that because it's in such a tight space... That's what makes it hard. But I want you to dive in a bit more. What specifically made that hard versus the other fight scenes that you had to do, which I will get to in a bit, are also two on one, it seems like.
0: (laughs) Yes. And also, I think it's a feminine fight because it's round. If you look at all the movements, they are a lot of turning around. The movements are so she's not, she's fighting with a knife mostly with these two men. And if you look at it, it's like a really a rotation and a dance of her between these two men in this small space, and she's just going for them, and they're going for her at the same time. It is like it's like a bit Asian, it's an Asian fight. It's like, uh, like a samurai, I would say. It's she is that, um, delicacy of that ruthless, she's ruthless, she's brutal, but there is some delicate movements in there that she's doing to fight these two men. And that's what I love about her, is that she is a villain as bad as the others, ruthless, but she's still a woman. She fights like a woman. She remains a woman. She's awful, like she's a pirate. But you have that femininity in that fight that I love very much. It's really her individuality and cleanness. She's very clean. She kills them very clean somehow, I would say.
1: So I don't have this in my notes and I r- rarely do I go off course, but you you just said something that caught my ear. You don't morally agree with Nick and hearing that, how does that impact the way that you perform her? Because you, you just said she's terrible. She's a pirate. Well, I never thought about those things.
0: These people the ruthless killers she's a gun dealer like she is like she is living in that gray zone she's uh, and that's what i love about her maybe i'm not her i'm don't agree with what she does in this world but She's one of those characters that she's in the gray zone. She's a pirate. She, is, she does very morally wrong things. She kills many people and she's dealing with guns and everything. And she has an empire. God knows what is behind it. Like God knows what mafia story she's living. Mm. At the same time, she's an incredible character that you want to know much more about her and where she's coming from.
1: And just because I love this scene so much and I can't pretend like I've seen all your work, but between the combination of the knife Rips and your eyes when you get stabbed. Is this the most physically and mentally intense scene you've ever performed? And whether it is or is not, how do you g yourself up to get there?
0: <laughs> well, physically for sure. It 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 was the most. I mean, it was. I had to change my underclothing three times that day because it was soaked wet. I was bruised from like my shoulders down. I was blue, like all my wow. body. It's exhausted. Anyways, at the end of that day and the end of the, at the shooting in general, but also yes, emotionally and mentally, because when the body is pushed to some very far limits, you need to be mentally prepared for that. Because like I always say, like monks sitting underneath a like a frozen waterfall, you are putting your body in a situation where you're pushing your body very, very far. So you, you need to be mentally prepared for that. And yes, this scene was really, really difficult because it was a combination of emotions and body. And of course, when you're so concentrated on your body, you might forget that you're also acting. So in that moment that you ta- say about my eyes opening, this was purely Sam Hargrave that told me instead of frowning, instead of closing your face, open it up. And I managed to do it even like only once or twice because my i was going into closing and by chance the take that we did and we we're doing like 20 30 takes for every stitch so it's like you can't imagine how hard it is we at uh, that one take that was perfect was the take that you could see my face opening and it's quite cool i love it yeah if, it's like it, so imperfect i love all these imperfections
1: if you want to talk about ways that nick defies general Conventions in these type of films. That's absolutely one. That might be one of the most stark faces of pain I've ever seen a female character portray in these type of films. When I close my eyes and think about this film, that's one <laughs> of the first things that's burned in my brain. So that, all your hard work in that scene paid off. It's a showstopper, as you could tell, because I just spent half my time talking about it. Um, I'm <laughs> curious when when Sam told you that Nick was going to get a expanded role, which I think not only worked in terms of her fight scenes, but you are also given more of a emotional weight in in this film too. You go from supporting character to female lead. So I'm curious how Sam told you what your reaction was and how you guys worked on building out the character together.
0: You know, it's funny, in American projects, we say nobody tell you anything. It's so <laughs> hard to get information. Sometimes I need to do some like chantage, you know, I say, okay, I give you information, you give me the script. It's like, I need to push them to somehow tell me what's going on. So in the beginning, they just told me we need to go there two months before for training. They didn't even say anything about the expansion of the role and everything. Um, but again, I must say, uh, like uh, Netflix is much better than other platforms because they are sharing much more because they have been in this business for a longer time. So I didn't know. And then, of course, when I read it, I was very happy. And then, of course, they changed the script. Everything is keep changing, changing, changing. Um, but at the end, the result, she's there. She's like, she's down on the field, I think, because there was a lot of interest about her in the first one. and her character, where is she from? What is this relation? And at the end, we managed to bring them down on this field. And uh, you see that there's something that people love because there's something that people ask questions, they want to know more about. They ask questions about what is going to be their future? What was their past? It is something also you get to know more about Tyler, because if you want to know more about Tyler, you'd also need, want to know her his relation with Nick and where does it start? How did they meet? It's like it's a story of its own. So, yeah, I'm very happy they put it in and they kept it and it worked out because, you know, in these kind of projects, they can just cut everything out at one like a coup de tête and you can't do anything about it you know I've done so many movies like that and in this one I would say uh, that the chemistry won they didn't cut it out they kept most of it and I'm very very happy about it that they understood that it's important the chemistry of these two characters I'm very happy about it.
1: Yeah I will say that the making Tyler Rake feel more real whether that be the stuff with Nick or the stuff with his kid or his ex-wife and so on really just adds a weight to this film where now it's just some brute, not just stabbing his way through like villains. You actually understand who this guy was and who he hopes to be and stuff like that. Uh, I loved, I loved the first one, but this one I feel is bigger and better in every sense of other word. I have a bit more time here. So I I actually want to swing over to body of lies. This is one of your first American based roles. I think, Uh, and as luck would have it, you got to work with Leo and Russell and Ridley. What was that like working with those legends, especially at such an early stage of your career? And is there anything that one of them taught you that still sticks with you to this day?
0: Well, it was one of the really winking of the gods, I would say. And it's only when it's coming to me, it's always exaggerated. Like the first project out of Iran, it's not like a small thing. It needs to be with Ridley Scott and Russell Crowe and Leonardo DiCaprio. It's like always like exaggerated. And of course, just getting
1: tossed right into the deep end.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Just go for it. And Of course, that project really uh, divided my life into two because it led to my exile. It's like uh, it was more than only a movie. Uh, It was something that it was that little push to the train that the train went completely the other direction. And I would say working with Leo and um, Ridley, it was incredible because I was coming from the independent cinema of Iran and I was already like I was 24 years old. I was already like a star in Iran. And but, you know, the most thing that I never forget is the scene that it's not in the movie, it's in the deleted scenes that I had to touch him. And the funny thing is me and Leo behind the scenes, we were buddies, we were friends, we were going jet skiing, we were like hugging each other. But the funny thing is in front of the camera, I couldn't touch him. I was so stuck and Trump. I mean, I was so conditioned because I was coming from Iran that you don't touch anybody in front of the camera. And I remember that day when I was sitting there we were buddies like we were like buddies literally when they wanted to shoot I couldn't even imagine touching his neck and finding this piece of bone so they had to stop for half an hour really came and then Leo really said okay it's okay just put your hand behind my neck now go lower down it's not even a kissing scene it's like I just know. touching him for me was so uh, not possible so I would say he taught me how to touch a man in front of the camera. It was something that, uh, yeah, him and Ridley, they made me comfortable to be able to do that. And of course, right. and of course, what I one thing that also I learned a lot from Ridley really was always saying that you need to do comedies because that is your ace. You need to be in comedies, and uh, because he he was finding me quite funny, um, and the fact that he brought a lot of humor into that tragedy and drama that I was bringing because I was always tapping into the ocean of drama where he wanted my clown and he was thinking that the clown is the good thing in me. And it was something that I always remember that I always stand on, the, on humor rather than because I, I have an ocean of drama in, in me, but really encouraged that humor in me, I would say.
1: That's an amazing story. Thank you so much for that. I've got to start to wind down here. I'm going to shift to a role that's completely different from that. And that is in Patterson. That is where I'm from. So thank you for portraying our neck of the woods so well. I'm just curious if you have any particular stories from your time filming in that part of the world that you would like to share. I literally grew up right around from where that that takes place.
0: Well I would say one of the most uh, incredible things about Patterson and also it's a common point with this one is the way Jim Jarmusch came to to propose this role to me out of the blue like for extraction it was a pure proposition uh coming out of the blue and Jim Jarmusch is my like I, I like my idol since I was 12 years old with coffee and cigarettes so when he, when I got this phone call I couldn't believe this is happening. It was one of, again, one of those exaggerated gifts of life to me. And of course, going to this project, working with him, it's like it was really tapping into this spiritual meditation because it's all about this pure banal poetry of life, this like making this banality poetic. And also it's funny working with Adam working with Jim, that is so sensitive, so sensitive. And I was just in my element in that, exactly that clown that Ridley was talking about. She was living that lightness and humor and that openness of, she's like, a, she's the most spiritual character I've ever played. Wow. In. She is in the moment, present, positive. That's Laura. That's her. And, the whole process for me was like a dream because I landed to work with my biggest idol of cinema, Jim Jarm, since I was 12. So I was just cruising into this, uh, moments of absolute pure joy and glory, I would say. And of course, working in, um, uh, we were mostly shooting in Yonkers in New York, and we didn't go to Patterson. They went to Patterson really, but, uh, It's incredible. And that's my history with this city, New York, and that's why I love it so much that I have done so many projects in this city, and for me, New York is like Tehran a little bit. I know this city so well. I have so many friends, and the energy is the same. Is that testosterone, teenage boy, bubbly crystals. There is no place to rest. This teenage boy is just going completely the opposite of Paris, for example, that is an old woman. It's like in New York, you are that teenage boy and you are on bubbles and crystals and there's no place to rest for you. And this is, for me, gifts of this city to me, really. Like Jim, Jim is like, oh, my my pure love of cinema is incarnated in Jim Jarmusch, really. And his in cinema.
1: My- my teen years are a few behind me, but I've lived here my whole life. And still, every time I step outside, there's just the sense of like, wow, I can't, oh, I cannot wow. believe this place. Yeah. Goal, this was amazing. Your role Thank in you. this film, I think, it make it enriches the entire project for the better. I find you to be amazing. Actually, just hearing you speak. My only bummer is that if they ever make a film or show about you, that you can't play you.
0: Uh, <laughs> I will play me. Don't worry. <laughs>
1: Hey, <laughs> now they have the tech where you could play you at any age. So.
0: Yeah. Take I will. care. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Thank Appreciate you very much. Thank you. Appreciate your
1: time. <music> Folks, today I am thrilled to be joined by Sam Hargrave, longtime stunt coordinator and director of the two extraction films. Sam, first of all, congrats. I thought this new film was better than the first. And it was bigger, but it also felt more personal, which I think is a huge uh, accomplishment in its own right. And I also love the first one. So let me just say, as I'm sure you know, that came out at, at the start of the pandemic. And at the time, I was so desperate for a new action film with a star that I loved. So when that came out, I made a special night of it for myself. And it was just an absolute blast. And that sticks with me to this day.
0: Well,
3: um, thank you very much. First of all, for having me. Second, that you enjoy the film. And it's for you to feel, as a fan of the first movie, that the second one is better than the first, that's a huge load off our minds because that's the goal, right? Every sequel is trying to be bigger and better than the first and for you to feel that we accomplished that is huge. So thank you very much for that.
1: So I want to start with a film that's now on its seventh and that is Mission Impossible. I was reading Christopher McQuarrie said that the discussions for the seventh film began with him and Tom saying what they still wanted to do. Chris said, well, I want to wreck a train. And Tom said, well, I want to drive a bike off a cliff. Did any... Of those sort of conversations occur between you and Chris or if not where does the conceptualization of the set pieces start?
3: Yeah actually some of those early conversations happened between me and Joe Russo I remember early on uh, after the success of the first film and the you know how the Warner was talked about and executed the first thing that came up about a second movie was Joe mentioned he's like what if we did a a badass Warner in a prison and uh, Rake has to escape and that was the first sequence the first story idea i'd heard of it and so that was the foundation so very similarly it's like oh what's the craziest coolest place that rake hasn't been that we could put him and then do a wonder to get out of and we decided on the prison so yeah and then when hemsworth you know got involved with the story process for him it was mostly about character and saying like what similarly to thinking about uh, you know the physical things and objectives and obstacles what are some of the emotional uh you know Bob obstacles we can put in Tyler Riggs way that he can navigate through that will make the journey satisfying for him him and for audiences.
1: So I I have a note on that that I would love to get to in a bit if we have time, but I also want to talk about the nature of sequels. I had on a documentary about Lewis Pauldy, who's a pop star that I had not heard of before. And he said in it, it took him his whole life to write and tour his first album. And then he's asked to turn around his next one in one year. How does that quote make you feel about these films?
3: Very similar emotional reaction in that you do a film that has taken you a long time. It's kind of the culmination of it's your it's your first for me, my first film, first in this franchise. And then right after that, you're saying, all right, we need a sequel and it's got to be bigger and better. So what do you got? Fortunately for me, I've been doing and I imagine this musician has been doing things for long enough that you. You didn't put everything that you have or everything you know in that first album or first film. So there's a few th- tricks up your sleeve, but you do have to learn. You have to keep putting yourself out there and challenging yourself as a filmmaker, as an artist to to bring something new and fresh to the table.
1: Speaking of challenging yourself, what was the most tef- technically difficult set piece in this film? And what's the number one thing you would like audiences to understand about that scene that you would think help increase their understanding of a or appreciation of it. I ask that because there are multiple moments in this where I'm screening in a screening room where it's me and just one dude. And I'm yelling out like, how the fuck did they just do that? There's that one move where Chris is like, boop, boop, boop. Like, so I'm just curious. Is there any scene that stands out in your head that you really want to explain sort of what went into bringing that to life?
3: The tra- The train sequence, which is part of the Warner sequence, as we call it, 21 minute, 7 second sequence that starts in a prison, goes you know escapes the prison with hand to hand combat. Then we go to a car chase through the forest, which ultimately ends up on a train where there's fighting and action. And so that train sequence we actually started with because of the logistics and the the depth of uh, rehearsal that was required to achieve something like that. We spent months rehearsing and then three weeks on location with the train, with the cast and crew getting that systematically prepared. And that was the most difficult because you, we're on a moving train. You have not only how are you going to in a, in a one shot or, or, or you know, a seeming one shot where you have to find these stitch points that are smooth, you have to choreograph those moves on a train, a moving train, but you also have to bring along the cast and crew. So because we're moving you know, three miles, our range is three miles because we're moving, you can't just, oh, let's reset. You gotta stop this big machine and re- back it up to, to one. It just eats into your day. So we had these two uh, clown cars, we called them, that w- where we stored the you know remaining cast, the crew, camera gear, stunt performers, costume, makeup, all of our camera gear and grip equipment, all on this train. And we had to base our day and the configuration of this train on what direction we were looking and where we were. So if we're on top of the train, looking back, well, we had to put the train in the front. We had to push the clown car. If we then you know, turn around, we have to build in the stitch. So in the move towards the front of the car, we have to build in an invisible cut the next day because overnight they have to reconfigure the train at the train yard. It's not like a car and a trailer. You just unhook and back it up and move it. This takes time and a lot of people. So the logistics of making that happen were mind-numbing and the AD department did an amazing job. But the thing that I, if, if audiences, would, one, <laughs> one thing I would love for them to appreciate, the danger and difficulty of landing Practically, no CG involved, a helicopter, full of stunt performers on a moving train. So that's, that's not something that you just do every day. Landing, flying a helicopter and landing it anywhere is dangerous because you know, it's, a, it's a large moving machine with a lot of spinning parts on a moving train. So it's like a moving target. And, and on the front side, we had power lines. So there was a specific uh, space where we could land this train where it was open, right? And so we had you know, power lines on one, the front side, trees on the backside and so there was I think a 29 second window that we had to get the chopper in line it up do this move that Fred North the pilot who was amazing and probably the only guy in the world that would do that to, to flare and make this really cool move and then land get the camera in front and I was operating camera so run alongside of this helicopter through hurricane force downdraft winds it's, you know, the, the the wind force is enough to lift the steel machine off the ground.
1: That's incredible.
3: So I have to imagine what that you know, the, the force applied to the ground to lift it off. So it's landing and I have to run under it with a camera and try to keep it somewhat steady. Wow. I think it's five or six stunt performers get off safely with no safety lines because they can't, you know, be connected because otherwise they'd just be dangling from the chopper. So. All of the safety and logistics involved in such a dangerous stunt were mind-blowing. And the fact that we were able to do that safely and no one was injured was amazing and something I'll be
1: proud of for the rest of my career. All your hard work paid off because that sequence is a showstopper. And I want to add that the level of difficulty is increased because unlike the first film where you're largely following Rake, the female character whose name escapes me at this time, I apologize. Yeah. Yeah, she is Tom. in. She's incredible in this. She is also sort of a main component Opponent in this sequence, where you're sort of bouncing back and forth between the two. Correct. Um, yeah, with
3: multiple storylines, we had to follow, which makes the or much more difficult because you didn't, you're splitting attention, and now you have to make sure you're not away from you know your your lead too long. You don't want to be wait. Where is Chris? Why am I not watching him? So you have to make what you're doing when you're with Nick or with even we followed the villains for a short amount of time and trying to use that to build tension. But you have to make sure what's on camera is informing the story, revealing something about character, or at very least mounting tension until you get back to your lead character. I story.
1: can't wait to see how fans react to Nick's expanded role in this. Her moment in like the train cockpit where she's going two on one is gnarly, man. That's one um, of my
3: favorite fights that I've ever done actually. Oh, yeah. cool. Um, yeah.
1: oh, I cannot wait for this film to be seen so I could talk about it to people. <laughs> um, So last summer I interviewed the, uh, the writers of Spiderhead and they were infusive in how underrated of a dramatic performer that they think that Chris is. I actually can't really believe that he's still so underrated, considering the fact that I believe he's the emotional core of the Infinity Endgame saga, which are two of the biggest films ever made. And I find his dramatic journey is the heartbeat of that. How do you leverage Chris's dramatic talents in this film?
3: I would agree with the writers of Spider-Head that I I don't know. Well, disagree that he's underrated. I would agree that underutilized, if you will. Like to give I think him they said roles, that
1: pretty much yeah.
3: Okay, well then then we're in agreement fully. Is he has I mean he's not just a you know a, an amazingly fit body and like a, and a beautiful face. He he has a creative um, intuition that is I think unsurpassed in in the in the film world and his collaborative capabilities and and willingness is to me bar none. So you put someone like that into a dramatic role, he's going to put 110% into it. And he has the chops, like, the, like you said, Infinity War, like that scene with him and Rocket in the cockpit of, was one of the, like, brings tears to your eyes. And it's the emotional core of the journey of those characters. And so for Tyler Rake, one of the things that I wanted to, to really lock in on and, and make sure that he and I were in agreement on was the emotional journey of this character, because I know he can go in there and kick and punch and elbow his way to stardom. But that extra level of the audience caring about the kicks, punches and elbows, that then makes the difference, I think, between a decent movie and a good movie.
1: Sam, let me just say, I think you guys nailed that, because one note that I have here, something that worked particularly well for me in this film is the further humanization of Tyler, particularly towards the end, where the son is introduced in the first film, so this is not a spoiler, where he finds out what his son thought of him. That mm. really, really worked for me. And as you said, I think that goes a long way in making the action matter.
3: Great, yeah, we, that was that was our paramount goal in this film, was you know if we didn't, Yes, we wanted to make the action bigger and better. Yes, we wanted to entertain people. But at the core of our process was let's make sure that we reveal more about Tyler Rake and make him even more relatable than he was in the first movie. And I think, you know, Chris in his performance really does that.
1: Now, being as spoiler free as I can, the film, like all successful films do, teases the potential for a third. What Mm -hmm. needs to happen in order for that film to become a reality?
3: We're kind of waiting for the to see, uh, see how the second movie is received. We had no idea the first movie would be so well received. Um, I think you're
1: going to be all right, bro. I'm telling you. <laughs> well,
3: well, if it, if it does, fingers crossed people enjoy the second one. There there already is and this is without spoiling anything because I think Joe has said it in the you know in, in uh, pop culture on on lots of different sites, but there is a story for a third movie in the works. What it is exactly, I can't say right now. But I, I believe there is another adventure in the wind for
1: Tyler Rick. Have you spoken to Chris, though? Because I know that he was going to take a step back. Is he on board for a third film if and when it does go forward? Yeah, when, when
3: he, he is taking a step back to kind of just be spend more time with family because he's a, a family man that's very important to him. And just to kind of enjoy the, the life that he's earned to this His point. show
1: was great, too, I must say. Limitless,
3: right? It's so good. <laughs> so great. He's such a great uh, presence on camera and just a really good human. But the... The desire to take this character as far as it can go, and the fact that he has a franchise outside of the Marvel Universe, I think, are two things that are very, um, you know, very enticing to to Chris because it's, you know, to to be heading a franchise that has the emotional core and depth that, that Tyler Rake does, and still have this globe-trotting action, you know, grittiness to it. I think those are two pretty cool characteristics, and he recognizes that. So I, when we spoke, he yes, he has. Um, Said that he would be interested in and in per- perhaps reprising the role.
1: Well, and your point about the two franchises that he has, I think that this one is special because it's more like the you know I grew up with the Stallones and the Schwarzeneggers and the Bruce Willis's, where you know, no offense to Rake, people aren't showing up for Tyler Rake the way they are Thor. People are showing up in this movie for Chris Hemsworth. I think that's yeah. a huge difference. Um, yes. So. Being again, so to that note, with sort of the action stars of my past and yours, are there any dream castings for their for for this third film? Is there any action star that you're simply dying to work with? I got to try, um, Sam. I'm sorry, brother. Yeah.
3: Well, I mean, again, I I, I can I think I could say this without spoiling anything because no no one has been approached, no deals have been made. I I mean, there are so many different iconic action stars that I would love to work with and see in that film that you just list them you, you did list them earlier i mean the schwarzeneggers the the stallones the you know the willis's the nick Cages. like who, of that iconic era of like 90s and 80s and 90s action films any one of those characters would be amazing to see join this universe but again i, I can't say because none of that stuff's been finalized
1: right right and then speaking of you know big characters and big roles and i will bleep this out because this is definitely a spoiler this film contains a cameo role with I'm just curious why him and how that came to be. And again, don't worry, I will bleep this all out until the film is out. Okay, great, great.
3: Um, well, Bleep Bleep is an amazing actor and an amazing talent who in, the, you know, in, the, in his own canon of film has stood out as is just something that, or someone, sorry, that who really brings all of his heart, soul to the characters he plays. And so he also kind of um, is a huge fan of chris's but also a good friend like they they go they go way back and have worked together and they've wanted to do things together outside of that universe and so when we were trying to expand the universe chris made a phone call and said hey would you want to come play and he graciously said yes and you know there you go
1: perks of having an a list star as your lead right Sam, congrats on this film, man. I genuinely mean I loved it more than the first. These have sprung up out of nowhere to become like one of my favorite action franchises out there. So I can't wait to see what you do next, whether it be Extraction 3 or something new, man. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. All right, Sam. Cheers. Take take care. All right. Thank you again for joining us this week. Make sure you follow my buddy Cade at Cade underscore Under. Follow myself at Eric underscore Ital on the podcast at PostcredPod. Follow us across all social media platforms, including TikTok. I've been cooking over there recently. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, if you would be so kind. We have got Mission Impossible coming up. Maybe next week we'll talk a little bit of Extraction, Indiana Jones, and more. All right, y'all. Peace.